Welcome to the Phase World Podcast. Engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Phase World Podcast. And this is a regular interview format of Phase World. Today's special guest is Nat Novak, and to be honest, I've been dying to release this one. You'll find out very soon, because Nat is a studio manager I met at Arnold, and he is a maker of all things. Since then, Nat has left the agency and began to pursue a new career at Brand Content, which is a small agency based in Boston. Nat reminds me very much of my grandpa, so my mom's father, who was also a maker of all things. And I remember uh, when I was still in grade school and he would ask me what I wanted. He could make anything. I wanted a desk, a chair, a shelf, and he will return them back to me within a couple of days. And after that very assignment, he would ask me, what else do you need? And in this past two years, I have known Nat, and while we both worked at Arnold, I found the two of us running around the office just like everybody else, but suddenly we will slow down our footsteps and have a meaningful human existence level conversation. And I always wanted to capture those conversations and glad we finally did that. Here's why I found Nat to be not only interesting, but also a bit superhuman. He can make anything. This episode is one of those rare opportunities for me to invite you to listen while browsing on phaseworld.com. The link is available if you're listening via Lipson or on your iPhone or Android app. Simply flip over to description or perhaps you are already on phaseworld. When I first set foot at Arnold, the first stunning creation I witnessed was the Black Submarine designed and built by Nat for young children to play with during Halloween a few years ago. So at Arnold, like many other agencies, during Halloween will invite employees' kids to come play at the agency. And this black submarine looks like a spiky ocean animal or some sort of a robotic shark. And it instantly captivated my eyes time and time again. And in fact, whenever there are clients and new hires visiting the office, the black sub was a treasured uh, must visit, a must stop. So Nat built insanely complex units. Well, he also uses raw, simple materials in, in the black sub's case. It's just purely cardboard boxes. And uh, we'll also go over this crazy skull he constructed using only razor blades. I jokingly said that if I were stuck on the desert island, Nat really needs to be there, be around and build a ship to save all of us. And I mean it. That's who he is. Working with Nat is an eye-opening experience for me, to say the least, which we'll discuss in great details in this episode. Nat teaches me how to be open-minded, be creative, be human. He reminds us to ask the question, why? What is the problem we're trying to solve? From making things, using cardboard boxes, to creating a leather case for Jack Daniels to celebrate 
Frank Sinatra's 100th birthday, Ned deconstructed his creative process in our 45-minute interview. If you are a parent, I am sure you can learn a few things from Nat on how parenthood has further influenced and in many ways enhanced his creative process. If you enjoy this episode, as always, please consider sharing with families and friends on social media or simply via email and leave us a star review, which only takes seconds, or a brief text review on iTunes. I believe the new iPhone app is making this very easy without you even leaving the app. Otherwise, um, please Google iTunes, Phase World Podcast, and that will take you directly on the landing page. Thank you so much. And without further ado, please welcome Nat Novak to the Phase World Podcast. Welcome to Phase World Podcast, Nat Novak. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm very honored to be here. Thank you. I, I feel like, you know, half an hour ago, I felt like this conversation is going to be the essence of my podcast because part of what I'm trying to do in 2016 is to teach other people how to have these conversations. It sounds like teaching someone how to walk or run, which is such a given. I, I would generally very much agree with that. I mean, what it, what, it's, what I admire about what you're doing is trying to show somebody that a hammer can't just be a hammer. It can also exist as seven or other tools, seven or eight other tools, that if you just look at the context correctly, quickly you change your point of reference and orientation, mm-hmm. and then your opportunities for use of that tool just exponentially increases. You know, that's what I really find interesting about your podcast. Well, thank you. I, I think when I hear real-time, like, live feedback from people, it really gives me that boost of why I'm doing what I'm doing. And to me, you know, like I mentioned last week, even even if the content is meaningful to a single person, if all you, you've ever listened to is that one episode, and that's enough for me. And I think constantly in today's day and age, we look at statistics, you know, how many likes we got, how many shares. Uh, but I think that's kind of all arbitrary compared to sort of the, the real connection, you know. Well, you're talking about, you know, very top-line learning versus very deep, meaningful, T-based understandings, mm-hmm. uh, specifically about whether or not somebody has a deep, guttural sense and uh, wants to dive further beyond the context of just top-line knowledge that they can pick up very readily mm-hmm. from any of the search engines or social media. And also, like, or out of convenience. I think that this conversation is something I wanted to have for a very, very long time. And and I think, you know, we had a very brief moment to work on a project and, you know, the requirements changed several times. And I think so many people in this agency find you and your work to be so interesting. But everybody's waiting for that moment. It's like, gosh, only if I could just work with Nat on a project, you know. Well, I think part of that is, you know, getting beyond the constraints and, uh, figurative limitations of departmental resourcing. Uh, It's really about identifying people that have the potential to augment the outcome in a very positive manner and trying to find people uh, that aren't afraid to get uncomfortable and being comfortably uncomfortable with not knowing what the answer may be. And that's what I like about working with you. You're you're not so uh, rigid in your viewpoints. 
it's okay to have bantering back and forth to truly get to an understanding of what you're trying to solve. It's not a matter of here's my solution executed. It's here's my problem. Let's talk about it. And that really changes the dynamics of what I hope to bring to the table in many instances. I found our interaction on that particular project you're describing, I wish there, there were more, is that I was able to learn so much in a conversation of, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes. Uh, if you remember, we're trying to find the right material to kind of construct a kind of package, the Google Cardboards. Mm -hmm. What I loved is you start naming these materials and I just... And I just, you know, in a meeting, I was like, wow, I've never heard any of those terms before. I don't know why certain materials other than cardboard box will react to the glue a little bit differently and how certain materials can actually go through uh, the number of wares that we'll expect at a certain event. So you're thinking ahead of time and explain to us like just how differently, you know, these materials can work. And to my mind, it's like, how do you, I mean, how do you even know, where do you learn all this information from to well, know what well, to work with? <laughs> for, for me, it's all about, you know, the materials are very, very interesting and curious because, again, it's much like what we talked about earlier, taking a hammer. Can you take a hammer and use it for different purposes? So it's learning all these different materials and exposing yourself um, in, in a multitude of different uh, facets. You know, sometimes they're just through journals. Sometimes they're through trade publications. Sometimes they're just through conversations or, or through uh, factory tours that I do on my own. So they're constant. I'm constantly looking to learn and learn and learn, mm -hmm. and try to have dialogue and conversations and start more and more meaningful, uh, just general roundtables about like, how do you plan on using this? You know, is it a foam material? Is it a real material? I mean, I'm thoroughly fascinated by some of the technology that's being developed over at MIT with the folding technology, where you can essentially, through um, treating certain materials in a certain manner, it can actually construct itself. So self-building boxes or whole entire architectures um, just by treating certain uh, materials in a certain fashion. Um, is that gentleman's name Skylar, by chance? The name's very, very familiar. I'd have to look back in my notes to see if that's, in fact, his name. Yeah, I, I remember he's kind of this, he's kind of like young guy, blondish, and mm -hmm. uh, I remember his name because I feel like Skylar is such a, you know, <laughs> this unusual yes, name. definitely unusual. Yeah. I think for me, it's it's trying to look at that, and is there a way to gain more value by using mm -hmm. different material types, and or thinking about using different materials based on what your intended use is, and or for that matter, mm -hmm. looking at strange and alternative methods of getting to the end result, because there may be a way to circumvent all of the hard work. It just requires a lot of rigor of thought. You mentioned factory tours. Yes. Did I hear that correctly? Uh, what which ones have you uh, gone to? What what, what what is that so, about? There's a bunch of different ones. The Globe ran a recent article essentially about people who are interested in manufacturing, manufacturing processes, but it's been something that's been um, of, of particular interest to me um, since I've been very young. Uh, the GM, uh, GM cars used to operate a plant, uh, plant in, I believe it was Framingham. And I remember my father taking me and, and a couple of my friends over there to do a factory tour, but it was very interesting because you could see the methodology behind how somebody set up the plant and the rigors that individuals have to deal with, but also how one person's effect has a potential to exponentially increase and look and alter somebody else's job down the line. So it, it really helped inform me about having to really deeply think about the problem you're trying to solve. I believe uh, Benjamin Franklin said it, it should be something... Uh, 
only 10% of your total effort should be in perspiration. All the rest should be in preparation. So ultimately, you know, most of your thoughts should be really exerted up front, really clearly defining what you're trying to solve, really clearly looking at and analytically just barraging the problem. Yeah, keep talking. I was <laughs> it's, it's okay. Barraging thoughts um, and, and really trying to push and push and push and ask why and why and why until you get to a really small granular level. And then from there, it's very easy to find a solution at just about execution after that. Yeah. There's one, you know, for my listeners, there's, I'm going to post a list of pictures and uh, certainly your website as well. I appreciate that. Yeah. we. You have, unlike, you know, unlike other Unlike other guests, Nat is the best. It's not what I meant. But you have so many physical products to show. And I think a theme of our conversation today is about building, being a maker, being a builder. And to me, that's so fascinating. Uh, it's something that I always enjoyed doing when I was a child, but something I also gave up on so early on. You know, there's right now we're just pecking away on a laptop. And I don't remember the last thing I built, but the first thing I saw coming to Arnold about two years ago, joining the company, the first thing I saw, and I never asked why, and there's no description, was this thing we were pulling up, we were looking at, it's called the Black Sub. Um, so essentially, um, we were tasked with coming up with a child's <laughs> party theme, and it was uh, like 20,000 leagues under the sea. And this was kind of delving into some of the design trends that were going on during that time period where we had very crystallized and very... Um, geometric patterns that were coming out coupled with, uh, you know, looking for an opportunity to create a structure that children can interact with in a very <laughs> physical way. So from there, what I ended up doing was looking at what we had, which was a plethora of foam core and creating a, um, looking at historical uh, technical drawings of the HMS Nautilus, as well as um, several other around the 1850s type submarines and semi-submersible uh, vehicles, because it, it lended itself to the idea that you have multiple plates that are all welded together or fit together and jointed in a very interesting uh, visual manner. So from there, it was very easy for me to go ahead and create a technical drawing and augment things to allow children to really interact with that space. This thing is awesome. I love how you describe it in such a scientific way. I, I feel like this is like the symbol of Arnold. And whenever I'm sure whenever we had an intern or a visitor, young or old, I would drag that person and then this thing disappeared from our sixth floor and I I don't know where it is now. Actually, we um, segmented 18 inches off of this thing mm -hmm. and um, it's actually up on a shelf. So it's it's formerly was about six feet tall. So we had to segment um, about 18 inches off the bottom, reweld the whole thing back together with uh, hot glue as well as several other structural supports. And then it's just up there for kind of a, a display display. For display purposes. This thing is so cool. So many times I just want to uh, like walk inside, but I wasn't sure if this is for client and I didn't want to destroy it <laughs> and have to have witness around me, but it looks so cool. And then the, I read the description, like all four kids, I guess small kids could fit in and play around and explore. Right. And that's, that's so, so much of what you do as a child is you want to have a visceral experience. It needs to be about space and time and touching and tactile experiences. And that's something that we tend to lose over time. We get drawn into the idea that it's just 2d um, on a flat screen and or on a smartphone. I mean, thankfully, you're starting to see things coming up with uh, VR and augmented reality where it's becoming 
an augmented world, certainly, mm. but it's becoming more interactive and more immersive than you've ever seen in the past where everybody had to go to a portal that's either a laptop or, or a, a touchpad and or a smartphone and everything's just on a flat surface. Whereas you can physically go in, you can work with things, you can break it. It's okay. <laughs> and yeah. that's, it's not uh, something like you see here on a on a uh, computer screen, which you can't interact with. You really don't get the depth of field. You really don't get the ability to touch and, and understand the um, how something works. Yeah, I mean, to me, this is I personally. I mean, I even to say that as a digital producer, personally, I've never really gone into the the virtual reality side of things. And I've been to trade shows and enjoy a fifteen second experience. And I, you know, to me, trade shows are typically very boring. So that's usually the highlight of my experience there. But the the idea of touching a physical thing and to see things as it is with your naked eyes. Um, and to, to be part, I, you know, I'm not trying to, I guess I'm struggling with a word here. Just be, be part of that experience. going to immerse yourself well, in something. I, you know? I think that's also a reaction we're seeing within society. I mean, so many people are gravitating towards craft and crafting, um, and having things that are well-made and having an actual person associated with that. There seems to be a reaction that people are wanting to have more of a personal relationship with an item. Um, it, it may not be in all instances. Certainly, you're not going to go ahead and get somebody to cobble every single pair of shoes that you have, but you may have the experience of having a cobbler that may fix a mm -hmm. pair of shoes that you bought elsewhere and or crafting a specialty pair. Mm -hmm. um, likewise, with a pair of, uh, you know, pair of jeans, custom jeans and or other uh, things that you may have in your house. How did it make you feel when the little baby party and many of our coworkers got years of one, two, four, five year olds. How did it make you feel when they kind of see the thing and then rushing into it? I wasn't there at that actual day, but I know the feeling well. I have two small children of my own and you know, that sense of wonder, that sense of awe, and they just don't have any pretense about it. You know, it's just something for them to experience. And it's so wonderful to see their willingness just to jump and run and smash into things occasionally. You know, things get damaged, that's fine. But it's, it's easy enough to, to repair. And most of the time, they're just trying to figure out in their heads, how does it work? What am I supposed to do? How does it exist? Uh, it's not like typical pieces of art where you have a velvet rope in front of you. This is supposed to be something that you're experiencing. So you have a little boy and a little girl. Yes. How many things have you built for them? Are you like the best dad ever? <laughs> I wouldn't say that I'm the best dad. I'm very fortunate that my wife and I live on a farm. And because we live on a farm, it's trying to inform them of the things that they get to experience. Um, you know, my son is very much uh, mechanically inclined. I try to encourage that as much as possible because it really creates a personal relationship with, I understand how this works, not just how it's made and the material types, but how does it work? Do I know the difference? Why I'd use magnesium over aluminum? And it, we're starting to have those conversations. How old is he? 10 years old. Wow. So for, for me, it's why do you use a certain material? Do you know the properties of that material? Um, there are certain times when you can take an augment uh, material for um, particular use, whether it's going to be in a, a uh, particular caustic environment. Um, and we have those conversations now. Do I think that it's all sinking in? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> but at least it's a conversation that's trying to inform 
how he's thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, case in point, he probably has more time on my backhoe than I do <laughs> mm. because it's trying to teach him how to understand hydraulics. How does it work? How can you um, amplify your the amount of work that you're doing by implementing different uses of equipment? Mm. And how do you um, think about how you use certain things? Because he has this such it sounds funny, unusual exposure to your expertise and and daily practice. Mm -hmm. And do you see that he could be excelling in certain subjects in school or excel in certain ways that he's thinking? It's been commented on me by several teachers that his problem-solving ability is probably that of a high school student. Oh, my goodness. Um, (laughs) Now, he does struggle with other things due to his dyslexia that he unfortunately inherited from me. (laughs) Um, but again, that, that creates just a different way of looking at the problems. I mean, you have to learn your ways around doing things. And how he does in school, sure, he has his struggles, but it also creates a unique opportunity on how he sees the world is different than what an average learner would run into because he's having to problem solve around just to get in line with everybody else. Mm, that's so interesting. So you Living on a farm, where approximately, we don't have to give out an exact address, um, but which, which town? So my wife and I own um, our small farm in Hanson. South, yes, southeast Massachusetts, uh, just southeast of Brockton. Oh, wow. So, Do you, so you live on a farm. Do you happen to like grow any produce? So we don't... <laughs> We have produce on the farm. We have a few apple trees. We grow a, a few small things just for our own personal consumption. But this is uh, predominantly livestock. So my wife and I have two horses on the farm, a bunch of chickens. Oh, my God. That's awesome. So <laughs> you know, also what we're trying to teach the kids is, you know, you're oftentimes today, many people don't learn to have personal interactions with people. And mm-hmm. this is something that I've taken note of prior to having kids. It's everybody's down in their electronics, not really paying attention, paying attention to the feedback people are getting because they're not paying attention to people's facial features and emotional mm-hmm. um, reactions. The good thing about growing up around large animals is you have to be paying attention 24-7. Are they flaring their nostrils? Are their ears pointed back? Where are they looking? What is their body functions? How are their features going? You have to be attention because if you don't, you're going to get hurt. From horses. From friends, horses. Yeah. But this quickly translates into a human experience where he can start paying attention very on a very granular level to people's behaviors and notice the difference between what they're saying and what they're doing mm-hmm. and also take away how emotionally they're doing as well. And as a result, he is very much emotionally aware of where certain people are at. I believe that's augmented because of his experience with animals. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. I, so funny, before this conversation, I didn't realize we had farms in Massachusetts. I was so, pers- my personal experience, you know, moving from Beijing, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know when was the last time for me to see, like, an animal other than just, you know, a pet, like mm-hmm. a puppy or a cat. Ever, ever. And I remember traveling to Europe for the first time when I was, like, late 20s, and I remember in Holland and seeing the cows, and just, like, they're just... This is having a good time. They're like part of the society, and and then, you know, the timeline kind of travels back and forth. But as you, as I mentioned before, I went to high school in Maine, and for Thanksgiving I had nowhere to go. And of course, a, a classmate took me in, and in her house up in northern part of Maine, 
it, there are like 11 horses, all different breeds. And there are like seven dogs, three cats. I don't even know how I went to sleep for a straight week. But it was so cool. Well, it's, it's a, it informs a completely different experience. And it should be said that uh, small-scale farming is entirely different than agribusiness and or large-scale farming. You know, I, I've been fortunate also in my life to experience um, what it means to be on a New England farm versus a mid-Atlantic farm of a moderate size to um, some of uh, my mother's family ran a relatively large farm in, in western Minnesota as well. So experiencing all of those different aspects of farming also informs a different manner of thinking. You know, how you solve a problem here may not be elsewhere as well. So I think that all of these things are culminating, at least for me personally, in recognizing that there could be more than one solution and that oftentimes wants to drive that conversation of what you're trying to solve because there are many different solutions and they all could be correct or one could be correct at the same time that it's wrong for that particular application. Mm, very, very open-minded. Um, I'm moving this towards you. I just realized <laughs> we, I'm so much louder than you are. Uh, whenever we had a hallway conversation, I just assumed because it's hallway, you're being respectful. I didn't realize our, I'm such a shouter. In no, 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 by all means. I mean, oftentimes it's, I think it's just who I am as an individual, uh, and based on the situation, you know, it's typically conversational things, tone it down a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just who I am. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's cool. And I, you know, I've known you for two years and it had been a while before we actually worked on the project together. And I think very hard about going back when we kind of looked at each other, grabbing coffee and all of a sudden start talking about like delving into the the mysteries of human existence, sort of mm -hmm. the conversation mm -hmm. repeatedly. And it's interesting. I think there's such a deep underlying connection among us human beings. And there is that connection of things that not only interest us, but truly matter the most to us. I feel like every time we have a conversation, there's just, there's so many things that you're thinking about that often I find that others might not necessarily be thinking about or making a priority or think, oh, that could be a waste of time, or I can impact, I can influence that, I can change it. What are some of the things that you're thinking about these days, the topics that interest you? I, for me, they're they're very much varied. Um, you know, for for me, it's it's trying to be as aware as I can of the surroundings that are that are that I'm involved with on a very large percentage of my day. Um, you know, I, I constantly have to look, for instance, at, at my home about not only are the projects that I need to get on, but also can one positively impact the other and cascade and cascade and cascade and have a multiplying effect time and time again, just here at, like here at work, it's, you know, trying to encourage the make the making of physical things and not to think of a computer as the only solution, but to see it as a tool that can certainly make things better, but not be the only solution that's out there. Um, and oftentimes that requires conversations. You know, one of the things that I like about this space that we're in is it it's truly is open, but it doesn't always encourage conversations. Uh, so is there an opportunity either to create um, pieces of ephemera of the culture here that can potentially be way stations throughout the agency um, to kind of 
encourage conversation and dialogue because I'm very much interested in the idea of uh, double entendre, how people, how one thing could be multiple things at the same time, as well as how people bring their own beliefs and prejudices, uh, whether they be positive and or negative, towards uh, a set of problems and or a visual uh, object. You know, I'm constantly trying to push that dialogue and trying to look for ways as an individual to push push those conversations because it's in having those conversations that you learn more about individuals where their passions lie and where there could be a possibility to work together in the future because you never know what you can learn from somebody else mm. I, one of the biggest challenge i experienced in the past 10 years of my professional life is i think it's very challenging as you know full-time employee where we spend a lot of hours commuting then we're at work I'm not sure if you feel the same way, but the ability to lie down is impossible, right? <laughs> I think, first of all, we can't just lie down on the ground. I try, like, stretching and doing some exercise, and we have a lot of foot traffic here, so it's very, it's almost creepy. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in my old company, there's, like, just an empty area, and then a bunch of our coworkers just decided that's going to be for a meditation purpose. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, like, one of those seven-minute workout. I mean, everybody has seven minutes. Yep. If you could just build a nap pot or something for us that would be so great well there's such an opportunity too i mean i, I just look at the space and in, in my opinion it's not fully utilized mm -hmm. uh there are some great airy spaces that have the potential to really do things that are transformative for the culture here and to extend beyond the context of you know is there a physical use but can this breed a larger good for the agency and culture that's within these walls. I mean, for this, because it's constantly evolving, like people are coming in, they're going out. You know, I look at culturally the fact that uh, I was reading an article earlier that in 2015, that there are more millennials in the workforce currently yep. than any other age demographic. So things are changing very, very rapidly. And you know, something that's on my mind currently is how does the space evolve for the needs of the individuals that inhibit the space at any given time? Because things in advertising move at an exponentially fast rate. Right. So there's an opportunity to really look at things differently. Such as? Like, what are some of the... I mean, one of the ideas, that you kind of, I thought it was brilliant. Uh, we started talking about it out of the blue again is... Because we are in, we create such silos. It's not just our agency alone, but nearly every medium to big size corporations. You're doing this. Your job ends here. Your responsibilities are these. You know, these are the articles and things that you should be doing, learning, and, and listening to. And and I, you know, you and I, you kind of inspired this idea of what if we just literally randomly assemble people from different departments and make them solve for something. Well, part of that as well is realize that, you know, oftentimes we're creatures of habit. And for better or worse, most humans look for the least amount of effort <laughs> to get any given thing done. If you recognize that as a trait of humanity, you need to find a way around that problem and to trick your brain into thinking outside of that. You know, I truly believe that we can become a more robust, more vibrant uh, community and offer more value as an ad agency if we can, at least for periods of time, whether it be shorter intervals and or longer intervals, depending upon how the problem needs to be solved, group individuals in clusters and then disseminate that information back out. It's almost like you're barrel aging people to ideas in different parts of the agency. 
uh, there's such an opportunity to increase learning and, um, as a direct result, make people aware of potential problems that they may have had no context or understanding of before. And by doing that, you may actually get some interesting solutions that you wouldn't have necessarily had beforehand because people wouldn't have been aware of that. Either if it's through uh, primary interaction and or through secondary osmosis where you're getting people that just happen to be in proximity to hearing a conversation, to be aware of it enough to think about it. So often it's you're surrounded with your peers with that particular problem that you're trying to solve. And by exposing people, even if slightly, to different environments, you may actually get more in return and you may get more involvement. And as a result, you actually may see client or sorry, um, employee happiness actually expand in the positive direction. Just through just this past few minutes, I realized if I were to be stuck on a desert island, I really want you to be there with me. <laughs> because I, I mean, I literally just went through the list of my friends and people I know in the agency. It's like, who is the most likely to cut down trees and, and build a boat to rescue all of us? And that boat could be a size for two people or rescue uh, 300 people. I feel like you could just you could do that. And w what I mean by that is I think what you what you said makes so much sense and there are certain risk tolerance that you know a company or an individual or a team are comfortable with and I feel like the tolerance in my in my eyes are just it's almost unacceptable meaning that doesn't excel us or doesn't propel us to try anything new well that is true to some extent but we're also right reaching a point where the paradigm of employing individuals um uh, and the salaries that are paid to them is going to overtake the reluctance to engage them in different forms. If you really look at how much companies are paying to employ individuals, it has to at some point in time set some of them free from the confines of these vertical structures. What that will look like, I don't know. Because I truly don't, ha I'm not a good prog prognosticator about what the future is, but I am somebody who does get a visceral feeling that I do have a feeling that things will have to change to get more value out of all of your employees. And part of that also means knowing them personally. You know, do I know about you and and who you are as a person and the things that truly excite you? And uh, and although you are excitable, there are certain things that in touch, in touch phrases that once you mention them, they actually, you can see it viscerally change your facial features, your body language, all of those different things. And you get super excited and super jazzed and into those conversations. And as do I, because oftentimes they lead to better conversations in the future. And like this past uh, week, we just ended up trading different articles about different interesting things that are being evolving so quickly. I, and I have all of them open right now. Uh, and it's, you know, and that part is, I was going to add to just how do you identify when people is truly interested, fascinated, or driven by certain things or ideas? Um, for me, the, the secret weapon is actually the recording, the audio itself. You instantly tell at the beginning when people are warming mm -hmm. up to each other. Mm -hmm. You know, in this case, we've known each other for a long time. Um, with some of my other guests at the beginning, they're very reserved. They're great people, very accomplished, but they're talking to me for the first time. I'm a stranger to them. They don't know anything about me. Um, and typically five, 10 minutes in and they start to warm up. Then when certain topics come up, 
they are so there's that spark. such like a visceral there's a spark reaction in, in the conversation whether it's somebody's taken back just in yes i get what you're talking about or yes this is what i want to talk about more deeply because it has implicit meaning on who i am as an individual you know yeah. it, it's it's truly amazing to see when those conversations truly ha happen like that and they should be treasured because you know, when they do happen, oftentimes people will want to come back and trade in those ideas and have more deeper uh, conversations. Almost nine times out of ten, my experience has been when you have those type of conversations, it may be a year, it may be even three years. But typically, somehow, in the world confluence mm -hmm. of the world, you end up having another conversation about an unrelated topic. I thought about this and send it to you or... Or somehow you'll see somebody in the news and go, oh, yeah, I thought about this as well. And you get back in touch with somebody. Yeah, exactly. And then you kind of feed on uh, each other's ideas mm -hmm. as well once you find that connection. And one fascinating observation from me, you know, as a friend to you is I, I have been a follower, a student of Seth Godin for many, many years. And the way he speaks, the way he presents, and there's... One thing he says, he repeats, it's almost his own tagline, you know, is that here I made this, you know, and he talks about the the bravery of creators, inventors and artists that to actually make something. In this case, he means making a physical product, writing something, blogging about something or, you know, podcast and just put it out there. And I realize everything I've seen about you related to you. There's a there's a physical representation, uh, you know, your website is a your website and then just the product kind of sprinkled around the agency and God knows what you make outside of the agency. And I, I said to myself, it's like, wow, that's I mean, that's not only skills, but to actually make it and then put it out there. And I want to, you know, for example, the the skull that's actually made out of uh, razor blades, it, it, it just there are things that you I feel like you dream up, right? We all have dreams, and then I usually just go to work and then forget about them and uh, not, you know. So what what is it like for you to kind of transform your thoughts, your dreams into like a physical thing? What I mean, is I've process? always heard it been said that the artist is trying to explain what they see in the world out there. And I, I've really found it to be true. You know, how it manifests with individuals, whether it be the artist be a craftsperson and or an artist, um, you're just trying to find a way to communicate with others about the truth that you see. It may not be the truth uh, that lasts forever, but it's the truth that you see at the moment. And for this, this was just a quick sketch uh, for me using used materials. You know, I, I tend to gravitate to reusing and the reused and how do I get more value out of it. Um as an individual, because oftentimes for me, it's learning about new opportunities based on somebody else's thought and trying to take it and push it even further. Uh, this was just happened to be around Day of the Dead. And I was like, OK, I can do something that's kind of interesting and a little bit dangerous. And <laughs> <laughs> I, was I was thinking about that. How do you put all these? Use I mean, first of all, are they your use so I work or? in the I work in the studio, so I use a lot of knives all the time. Uh, so these are snap-off blades, and we generate uh, as, as a collective of people inside the studio probably about I don't know, maybe about four or five pounds a year, and we have to dispose of them. So otherwise, it would just be regular trash. Um, for me, it's they're very interesting and angular, and they have the potential to repeat patterns very uh, differently. So for me, it's just looking at at them separating them 
um, and using them in a non-traditional function because that's really what I use every day. It's can I invent this and see this in a very different way or just change the relationship? Uh, it almost looks bejeweled to some extent, but once you come closer and realize that it's actually nice, people are almost taken back with, wow, this is awesome. And to me, that's exciting to see. One thing I realized I, I missed about the closed office environment where we were at the Prudential Center versus here, downtown crossing Boston, we have completely open space. Even our president has a regular desk, uh, just like everybody else, is when I walked into your studio, your office a couple of years ago, and I just felt like, wow, I want to see this guy's, the treehouse you built for your kids. Because it literally, to me, that's like a, this uh, mysterious treehouse, except that it's probably much bigger than treehouse. Um, <laughs> Or there's like physical products and there, I'm going to post a lot of these pictures if I, you know, uh, to, to share as people. This could be an episode where I want people to actually look at the web page as they're listening and just be browsing for however long they want and go back to it. But there's just so many paintings. I mean, there's so many things that just look, something like it is like, like, are you kidding me? Like almost make you feel like you could do it. You thought of it, but you didn't actually do it. Uh, you know, you, there are layers of cardboard boxes, you know, like this one. I think this is just uh, a piece of the foam core for know. depth of field. Uh, it, it's a lot of playing around. I mean, some of it is just, you know, playing around with the ideas and concepts and, you know, how does it manifest? And a lot of it is self-training. It's like, okay, I know how laser cutters work. I've used them in the past, but what if I do it by hand? Can I get the same level of precision? Um, it, it's almost, uh, you know, man versus the, uh, machine and, and can you make something with slight imperfections that may actually be more beautiful than something that's so exactingly perfect? Not everything has to work is something deeply profound. I learned from Josh Green recently is trying something and give yourself a break and say, this doesn't have to work. This might fail. And that's okay. Do you think, like, for your creation, for your line of work, do you remind yourself constantly about that? Or how do you condition well, yourself? Not everything try? is going to work out. I mean, I've had plenty of experiences where you'll do it and it just, it's not to the level of exacting perfection that you want and or the standards of excellence that you personally hold. And I think that's that's part of it. It's Part of it is determining what you think is great and are you living up to what that greatness is and sometimes you're going to create something and it's just not going to be there and it's okay to trash it burn it mm -hmm. destroy it just have fun with it and sometimes it's a learning thing that can just amplify the next experience you know did you take something away from it did you try something and it just didn't work okay well that's a dead end that's great i know it's a dead end well i can now take that and next time i run into a similar experience i know that mm -hmm. i need to go a different way and the great way, is, the great thing for me is it just further informs where there are opportunities to move forward and where it further informs where there are not opportunities to move forward. Um, and it's just constant exploration. You know, for me, it's mulling things over my head. I should do this. I should try this. I should take my stores and caches of different things and try to build something different. You know, I'm constantly egged on by my sister and or wife just to do something and create just because it, it to me it feels like I have to get it out of my head <laughs> um, mm -hmm. because I want to make room for something else <laughs> have you thought about if money isn't a, a, a subject uh, of concern and what would be 
a team or you by yourself like a dream project to work on that could be impactful and of meaning to you? What would that look like? There's so many manifestations of that personally that, I, you know, for for me, it's there are certain problems that I really find interesting. Um, the idea of decentralized power uh, in terms of the context of energy generation is truly interesting to me because how it manifests itself in different parts of the country uh, has different looks and feels and different solutions. You know, it's the idea that no one size fits all makes a lot of sense. I mean, in the town that I live in, the water table is exceedingly high, which lends itself to geothermal power or just, sorry, geothermal heating. Um, you know, the potential for using that in, let's say, uh, Nevada just isn't going to exist, but the potential for either solar or uh, wind power to generate different solutions does exist. Um, it's the idea of that no one size fits all. Um, but by the same token, I'm thoroughly fascinated as well as people's personal experiences in generating art and creating art. And it's trying to explain your different existence and experiences. Um, and can you expose them to different things? I'm very fortunate that my daughter is very into, into art and into that experience. So we do spend some time going over and like, what are you thinking? How do you see this? How can you see it differently? Um, and she's definitely opened my eyes to seeing things in a very different manner than I've entered into conversations. Uh, either um, visually, like she'll draw something and I'll draw something on top of it, and she'll draw something on top of what I drew, and it just, <laughs> it just, it, it's an interesting exploration, because I think as a child, you're not afraid to fail, whereas mm. a, as an adult, you tend to have experiences that make you resistant to failing. <laughs> I like what you described of you drawing on top of her drawing, because I you know, I, I, you probably saw on my Facebook updates, uh, a passion I have with my mom or something like our shared interest to teach little kids how to draw. And we use regular, we use markers, we teach them more American style drawing. We also teach them watercolor mm -hmm. painting. And the interesting part is the fact that your daughter allows you to draw on top of her drawing is actually kind of uh, not always a given because what I notice the difference between Chinese kids and American kids or American kids are very, uh, at times, you know, they, um, they're, you know, they have certain pride. And then I like the confidence, like this is my work and I put it out there. Um, but then we realize the initial resistance and struggling. My mom being a Chinese art teacher to say, Hey, let me show you, there's a much better way to go about this. Well, let's try this technique. You will see the difference. And the section, some of the kids, I think is, a, you know, Carol Dweck will call them the fixed mindset. If they really struggle, they don't want their painting to be touched. They don't want to see a different way to approach certain things. Whereas we started to shift their intention and I would explain to them why my mom is mm -hmm. doing this and why their work is so super well, valuable. You're, you're essentially coming up with the idea of critique. You know, The idea of critique isn't to tell you that you've done a bad job. The idea is how you could do it better. You know, how do you internalize that, how you could do it better? Do you take that as self-defeating, as, I didn't do that great, There's and as a result of getting dressed down as a result of that? Or is this an opportunity to say, like, this was an experiment, there were shortcomings certainly, but moving forward and trying to build on what I learned, this is a better way of achieving an end goal. Um, sometimes that's manifest in uh, physical experience, whether it's... Um, you know, somebody not achieving a specified goal in a certain amount of time, but oftentimes it's enhancing the learning potential moving forward and amplifying people being aware and self-aware much, much quicker. Um, you know, 
I, I get the idea that people want to say, I have ownership and complete ownership, but there's no truly new idea. It's just twisting old ideas over and over again. And mm-hmm. you know, I don't believe that my ideas are new by any sense. I just try to take my own personal experience and infuse that into them. And I see you not as just an individual artist, because given your position here, given uh, the number of people who are influenced by you here, I consider them as your pupils, uh, almost, you know, learning from you daily. And now you have your kids, you know, your son's 10 years old. I remember him being much younger for some reason. And then now you're also learning mm-hmm. from each other. Which and is and with I your think children. that's very important to realize is that, you know, oftentimes in American society, we're, we're taught that because somebody has a position and or uh, age, uh, advanced age, that their ideas are best. Now, it's not to say that their ideas are best because they're either have an advanced position and are older in age. It's just to say that they see it in a certain different way. I hope that in the end, there's discussion and dialogue because it should be about what idea is best for that particular application. And it could be that in one instance it works and in another instance it just doesn't work. It really should be about having a conversation about what we're trying to solve um, and being open to hear that your ideas may not, in fact, be the right solution for a particular application. And I'm okay with that. And I would also urge to say that we need to keep asking that question throughout the project. It's not to derail the team, but oftentimes that's only it, one that doesn't, it's not asked at all. Or it, it's only one mm-hmm. to the very and, beginning. And it should be a clarifying and, statement throughout. Is this what we're trying to solve? And, and trying to peg it against the problem we're trying to solve. Um, so oftentimes than not, we get so hyper-focused on this is the only solution that we're going down um, as opposed mm-hmm. to is there a way of taking it and moving and pushing it forward? Um, I, I truly believe it's how you get to great is to constantly question and push and prod and push and ask why and why and why and why. And as a parent, sometimes that I can attest to having that question asked why 5,000 times in a row can tend to be a little bit grating. But in the end of the day, they're trying to wrap their brains, uh, specifically I'm talking about my children, wrap their brains around why. It's not that they reject the answer that you give you, that that you're giving to them, but they're trying to have a more concrete understanding of why this is the best or why known has to be no. They're looking for you to fully commit to that solution. Um, And I believe that that's the way we should be working here at work is you should be constantly asking, why is this the right solution? Why is this the right application? Are my actions the right actions? Can I do it better? Why isn't this working? <laughs> you should be asking why, why, why all the time. You may be answering my next question, but as a parent, I love the parenting themes and just, I love kids. I hope to have kids one day. And and if there's anything you would love to leave to your children, the people you love the most in your life, that is not money. What is that thing that you hope to, for them to carry on with, be part of their spirit, to part of, uh, of who they are? Just the thirst for knowledge. I mean, I saw that from my grandmother to my mother. I saw that from my mother to me. I see that from me to my children. It's just that it's hard to explain. It it, it truly, it gets into who you are as a person and becomes infectious. You can't stop. It becomes almost a, a necessity like oxygen. You have to continue learning and exploring and looking and searching and just constantly wanting to be more than who you are and and to fully 
have a more open mind. Unexpectedly、uh, emotional when <laughs> when we start talking about these things, and and I see that it's almost a desire not just for your kids, but how you influence, how we influence the people around us is to have an open mind. And this is like a really good way to end the podcast.、There's, is there any? I always ask this question: Is there anything that I haven't touched on that you really would like to talk about? Because I think the only thing that's really starting to.、Uh... Really enter into my consciousness, and I'm doing more and more reading. This is the idea of this、uh, AI-based solutions that so many people are entering into as shortcuts for truly having meaningful dialogues with individuals.、Uh, I was reading a, a recent、uh, snippet, essentially about a new technology, which is a Bluetooth piece of technology that you strap to your in person, and essentially it's constantly just. Listening to conversations all day long, and it can actually produce wordles at the end of the day and piece peoples of influence and in what you're saying. So it's doing compounding of of your dialogue throughout an entire day. And so you find that fascinating. I find it equally fascinating and equally frightening at the same point in time.、Oh, uh, it's not to say、yeah. that I think、uh, technology doesn't have the ability to make us better, but oftentimes it prevents us from having the things that matter the most, which is discussions and dialogues amongst ourselves. And also, kind of not taking things out of context either. You know, there was a TV show. I believe it's on Netflix. I'll send it to you after. It's a, it's a it's a series of six TV episodes,、um, and it's a British show. So there's only just six instead、mm-hmm. of like the twenty episodes of American shows. And there's one about that. What if you have a chip installed, like in the back of your neck, and then everything you you see, there's a video captured. And basically, it, it's about how it ruins the marriage of this like lovely couple. About they can freely access like things have happened in their lives without them being you know each each other being、mm-hmm. present. Like there's an evidence, and there's. You can trace back. It's, a, it's very important to understand that. I mean, the context of conversation and dialogue is oftentimes lost. I mean, case in point, texting.、Uh, oftentimes, you're not able to read the visual cues.、Uh, conversations over a smartphone, you're not getting that full context that is really necessary to be able to understand. You know, is this person being、uh, cynical? Is this person just trying to be straight? You know, you lose、mm-hmm. that context, and it's so very important to having conversations. Yeah, and Skype and Google Hangouts are great, but for my podcast, I feel like it's it's kind of a a toss. To sometimes it it works really well, some days it doesn't work quite as well. It's quite a struggle for both of us.、Um, you can't really see. It, it's it's and you miss the all、same. the gestures. You know, you you see you see if somebody's fidgety, if they're breathing heavy, you lose that. Uh, definitively,、um, even across、uh, Google or Skype or, or any of the、uh, you know conferencing software that that are out there. Yeah, it's better than nothing. But wow, this is such a fascinating story. And there's thank you so much for being just so honest and transparent and giving me、uh, having just the same conversation as when the recorder isn't turned on. So <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad to have it. Thank you very much for having me. To listen to more episodes of the Face World podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or visit FaceWorld.com. That is F-E-I-S-W-O-R-L-D, where you can find show notes, links, other tools, and resources. You can also follow me on Twitter at FaceWorld. Until next time, thanks for listening.